Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Gilded Age, the podcast where we discuss how and why we're fucked. Today, we have a very <laughs> special guest with us, um, someone I'm a big fan of, uh, best-selling author, former presidential candidate, political activist, and spiritual leader, Marianne Williamson. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So you recently wrote uh, an op-ed in Newsweek, The United States of Oligarchy, which I thought was a delightful read. It, it, it captured so many of the criticisms that uh, I have made uh, over the years, but never in a concise you know, way. It was just, I thought it was a perfect uh, analysis for what is wrong with our political system. Um, and as a journalist, something I've been trying to to sort of get out there uh, in various different ways over over the years. Uh, so, so first of all, thank you for writing it. <laughs> well, thank you. I had, um, as I said, I'm I'm a big fan of yours, and I saw you say something on Twitter because I follow you on tw on Twitter, and I said I think you might like this. So I sent you that article. Um, yeah, clearly we're on the same on the same wavelength. Definitely. Um, so. In in the article, you you mentioned that the um, the Democrats have a habit of ameliorating the immediate and peripheral pain of millions of people, but refuse to challenge the underlying forces that make the return of their suffering inevitable. And like that is an incredibly apt description of, of what I think. Um, has happened to the Democratic Party, and I was hoping that you could explain it a little more for our listeners, um, as you so eloquently do in the article. Well, it started in the 1990s when Bill Clinton started the Democratic Leadership Council. And the idea really was that we can play with the big boys too. Uh, once money in the system exploded the way that it did, the Supreme Court said that money would be deemed free speech. Uh, people like Newt Gingrich uh, were making this whole idea of the undue influence of money um, more and more of um, a, a significant influence on political campaigns, etc. The Democrats took on this new face. And instead of being true or more than the not true to the traditional principles of the working person's party, they started playing it both ways and they've been playing it both ways ever since. And that both ways, of course, today is demonstrated by the struggle between the corporatist Democrats and the progressives. So the Republican Party has been bought hook, line and sinker by the corporatist mentality. They don't even pretend. Whereas the Democrats, as you quoted from the article, they, they feel your pain. <clears throat> it's like the mother who's really, I just feel terrible that your father is beating you. And we'll have milk and cookies mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Um, but the Democrats will do what they can, as in the quote, to, to ameliorate the peripheral, what is essentially a peripheral pain, but refuse to uh, challenge the underlying forces that make all the pain inevitable because the, the pain that's inevitable comes from the corporate matrix. They too are, are uh, under the sway under the thrall and under the moneyed uh, hostage uh, taking of the insurance companies, of big, big pharmaceutical companies, defense contractors, chemical companies, big agricultural companies, fossil fuel companies. I don't think the NRA in their case, so we can give them a pass. They, they're not so under the sway of the gun manufacturers, but they're under the sway of all the others. And uh, that's a serious problem. So yeah, I love hearing you talk about this and diagnose these issues in such a kind of impactful way. And, and I mean, even taking it a level deeper, um, 
and thinking about the idea of, of spirituality and morality in politics. Um, so there's always been this weird irony for me that uh, the side of the political spectrum that is most um, kind of outwardly spiritual, which I would say is the evangelical right. I mean, at least they play in that space a lot more is also the most kind of amoral as far as their policies, not only, you know, against the Christian doctrine that they, um, that you would seem to be very important to them, but also just from a humanitarian perspective. And then of course, in the center, um, what is these corporate, you know, Democrats and neoliberals, they don't want any sort of um, moral dimension at all to come into these politics because it's bad for profits. And then on the left, there's a morality, but it's a very secular sort of morality, more about Marx. Um, and uh, social justice which is great, but there seems to be this sort of spiritual void there on the left. And you seem to be a bit of an anomaly because you're very much on the left, um, but spirituality is a big part of your morality and your politics. Um, so I guess it would be interesting to hear you say a little bit more about that. And if you think that there is um, a spirituality that the left and progressives can adopt that would sort of help empower their politics and broaden its appeal. Well, when I was growing up, there was very much a religious left in this country. Uh, during the uh, Vietnam anti-war protests, uh, William Sloan Coffin at Yale and the Catholic Berrigan brothers, the idea of a, of a religious left was very uh, a much a part of, of, of uh, American society and the counterculture, the time of the 60s and the 70s, and also both Judaism, within both Judaism and Catholicism, there was a strong stance that you could always count on when it came to social justice issues. At about the same time, they both uh, took detours into single issue um, focus, the Catholics into abortion and the Jews into Israel. So that took a lot of energy out of any religious, uh, religious uh, support, uh, serious institutional support for social justice issues. Now, among white Protestants and the evangelicals, you mentioned the word spiritual. These people don't even claim to be spiritual. They are talking about religious doctrine, but even within the space of religious doctrine, I, I remember uh, uh, <laughs> you know, Jesus said, feed the poor. He said, help the poor. I don't remember him uh, saying, you know, help the rich as much well, that's what, that's as you possibly can. It's, it's tough yeah. to watch. <clears throat> right. <laughs> now, in terms of the neoliberals, it has to do with an over-secularization, the roots of which I myself don't understand. Bobby Kennedy uh, said that it was a contest for the soul of America. JFK said we cannot afford to be materially rich but spiritually poor. And obviously, Dr. King uh, was a Baptist preacher. He was speaking on the uh, on the foundation of religious, genuine religious principle. The the black churches have never separated uh, from uh, left wing politics. But in terms of the white, you've got the evangelical Christians who went where they went. You've got uh, um, I've already mentioned Jews and Catholics, and then you've got the general sense of neoliberalism, which just went into this over secularized uh, uh, over secularized. Uh, perspective that certainly is not the Marxist that you were talking about with the with the far far left. Um, Marx said uh, the religion is the opiate of the people, etc. But he, you know, those guys were Jewish atheists. I mean, they 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 were not as um, they had a problem with religion, 
But, you know, Marx himself was a humanitarian philosopher before he wrote the Communist Manifesto. So even that read on Marx is a little bit strange. And I think uh, there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding based on a failure to see that there's religious doctrine on one hand, and then there's moral spiritual values, uh, which today we see represented brilliantly by someone like Reverend Barber. So, so let me ask you, Joe Biden ran on, on sort of restoring the soul of America. Um, how do you think he's doing? Well, first of all, let me say that I think he is sincere. Um, when in the article that you mentioned, I talked about, about uh, FDR's three R's, relief, recovery, reform. On the issue of relief, although it's not what I would like as much as I would like to see, I would like to see $2,000 a month and so forth. I think he's making a, a good effort. On the issue of uh, rescue, I think he's making a good effort. On the issue of reform, he's not even trying. And that is the issue here. It, it's addressing immediate pain. I understand. I'm, I'm not underestimating or undervaluing, and I'm not failing to appreciate uh, the emergency nutritional services for children. I don't fail to appreciate what those uh, tax credits for children will do. Um, I do have a problem doing too much. Thank you, Master. Thank you, Master. Thank you, Master, for a one-time $1,400 payment. Uh, their video with all the people talking about what they're going to do with their $1,400, I thought was heartbreaking, actually, and a very cynical video. Uh, the woman who was saying, well, with this $1,400, I'm going to be able to give my children fresh fruits and vegetables. With $1,400, I will be able to pay for heat. I mean, come on, guys. Yes, winter will end. But how many months uh, will the, the, that $1,400 go for the fruits and vegetables? Now, Biden is, in the last couple of days, he's talking about taking the corporate tax rate from 21 to 28. So we're beginning to come back up out of the obscene depths uh, of, of um, uh, low taxation for corporate America. He's talking about taking the personal tax rate up for over 400,000. He's talking about a state tax, not talking about a wealth tax yet. He will not go there for Medicare for all. Of course, talking about COBRA, extending COBRA is just, you know, once again, like with Obama, the insurance companies tell you how far we'll allow you to go. Uh, so it's everything that you yourself write about, Walker. It's, uh, it's it, it, you know, it's interesting because in his speech, he said something. He said, government is our friend. Government is who we are. So I think he has an instinctive recognition that, of the damage, the fundamental damage that Ronald Reagan did, that the Reagan uh, revolution did in making people um, see government in a way that actually obstructs the capacity of government to help them. But even though he's certainly moving in a direction better than a, than a, a President Trump, even though he's moving in a direction that does give some rescue and some relief, it is far from the level of rescue and relief we need, and it's not even yet getting close to the levels of fundamental reform that we should be talking about. That would mean, uh, that would, I mean, uh, yes, reform. That, of course, would mean a wealth tax. That would mean Medicare for all. That would mean canceling the college debt. He clearly doesn't want to go there. That would mean Green New Deal. Um, that would mean free college tuition. So we have to keep pushing for the things that we know to be not only uh, demonstrative of serious reform, but also the things that the American people want. So I see, I see some 
analogies and what you've just brought up about Biden and Democrats in general about alleviating short-term pain and the way you've talked about the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a sickness care system, not a healthcare system. What, um, so, you know, when, when, once it's an emergency, we'll deal with it. Um, once, you know, you're in the heart, hospital with a heart attack, then we'll have to figure it out. But we seem unable to create a wellness sort of based healthcare system to prevent um, a lot of these expensive and life-threatening sort of illnesses from happening and then having to deal with it at that point. And economically, it seems um, we deal with things in the same way. We don't want to create a economic system where people will be able to save enough to deal with a $400 emergency, for example, and be financially well. Um, and it seems some, it seems to be fairly uniquely American. I, I would just like to hear your, your thoughts about um, that sort of short-term um, thinking uh, in politics and in, in uh, people in this, in this country and quick fixes and how, how, how can we uh, shift shift our our politics and our conversations so that we can start making sacrifices that are smaller um, but take over over time so that we are just much healthier in general well <clears throat> you're really naming the the deeper layer of of, of poison you said we don't seem to be able to create a health a real healthcare system as opposed to a sickness care system. No, we're able, they are choosing not to. And they are choosing not to because of short-term profit, profit maximization for health insurance companies and uh, big pharmaceutical companies that would be undercut by their willingness. Uh, chemical companies, let's not forget the chemical companies. Let's not forget how many people are sick, uh, how many children's brains are being affected, uh, that we know are being affected by some of the chemicals and pesticides. Let's not forget the many chemicals in our water. <clears throat> Everybody saw uh, Aaron Brockovich 20 years ago, and yet the multi-billion dollar uh, case that was settled in Hinkley, California, uh, PG&E, the poisons, the chromium-6 that she was talking about 20 years ago is not only not improved, it is actually ubiquitous. It's all over the country uh, and it's many more chemicals than just chromium-6. That's why I talked about uh, when I was asked on the democratic debate stage about Flint, I said, this is such an example. It's not just Flint, okay guys, it's Newark, it's Denmark, South Carolina, it's everywhere. So, and that's why in the article I was talking about, it's not just one thing, it's not just two things, it's the whole thing. That as long as there is this corporate matrix and, and until, we have, um, until we have either a way to get the money out of politics, which we're not gonna be able to do anytime soon, given the current um, makeup of the Supreme Court. But until the American people recognize that we are dealing with that level of, of entrenched malfeasance, and until the American people realize that until we're able to either overturn Citizens United get a, or get a, um, uh, get a constitutional amendment to establish public funding for federal campaigns, then what there has to be is a massive uprising among the voters. And this is where you get into the deeper ickiness, which has to do with the Democratic Party. You know, hearing you talk about this stuff, uh, I, I just, I have to ask, when you're up on a, a debate stage with like six or seven other Democrats who 
don't recognize these broader structural oh, they recognize them. or or don't or don't acknowledge it i should say because i'm sure i'm sure they're not nobody on that stage is dumb that or blind but people who are unwilling to challenge that when you hear people your colleagues try to you know answer questions without acknowledging that that sort of those structural issues i mean how hard is it to just like keep your mouth shut while they're talking and not be like, are you kidding me? Well, I did do a little bit of, are you kidding me? And within, <laughs> and within three days, the obvious get that woman off the stage began. Uh, the very well strategized. She's crazy. She's dangerous. She's anti-vax. She's anti-science. She's, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I dare to suggest that uh, big pharmaceutical companies aren't angelic in every area and people lost their minds. Um, uh, so no, there are, there are a couple of, I think Elizabeth tries to, uh, to make, to make the point of fundamental structural change. Bernie obviously tries to make the point of, uh, fundamental structural change. And the others, I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, they, they know where, where the power lies. And, uh, the democratic uh, debate stage is a multi-billion dollar piece of performance art. It's kabuki theater. That's what the whole thing was and is. And uh, even though it's become more clear now that it was Obama, mainly, and Clinton, I think, to some extent, uh, you could feel it even then. And if you thought about it, you knew who it was, because who else could it be? Although Tom Perez was clearly holding, carrying the buckets of water. I mean, it was, it, it wasn't, not only was it obvious to me being in the belly of the whale, it should have been obvious to everybody else as well, because it was, it, was, it was right there. So what are some of the biggest lessons that you learned through the process? Well, uh, personally, what I learned is um, should have been a lot tougher. Uh, when uh, when uh, Anderson Cooper threw certain things at me, I should have thrown them right back because I, I had the facts and I should have. Uh, when articles were written, I should have gotten on Facebook page, you know, Facebook Live the next day and gone through every single one. And uh, as it became clear to me how the political media industrial complex operates, I expected to be attacked, but I thought I would be attacked on things that were true, on the things that I stood for. Um, the, the, the game is there's a pre-prescribed conversation that the Democratic establishment says we're going to have. And you can't go outside the lines. And there's basically a pre-prescribed group of people that are allowed in. So, so the, the canard is only the people who have had careers that have been trenched for entrenched for years in the system that drove us into this ditch should possibly be considered qualified to lead us out of the ditch. It's so based in 20th century thinking, and we're in the 21st century so that which, you know, it, it's interesting because politics is an area unlike other areas. I mean, there's so many areas of American civilization where people have moved into the 21st century in business, in, in, in medicine and in healing and education, in, in many areas where people are taking a much more integrative whole person approach and they know that that's not wacky. Uh, politics, there is so much money. This is a multi-billion dollar um, um, scheme here and the resistance to any change is so great that the system does more to thwart the democratic impulse than it does to support it. When you ask me what I learned, not only did I learn how corrupt that system is, 
But I also learned how wonderful people are, how smart people are, how dignified people are, how decent people are. This was particularly moving to me um, in the primary states, because whether it's Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, or South Carolina, what I learned as a candidate is how very seriously people take their position as primary voters. They're very educated about the issues. They kick the tires. They want to know your thoughts. I mean, they really make you a good candidate. You know, I mean, other people might be picturing you and mischaracterizing you in such a way that too many people don't want to come hear you. But if the people who come hear you, they're tough in a good way and they're ready for the job. That's why the primary system exists. But the system uh, actually mitigates against the real democratic spirit by which, and we saw this in 2016 as well as in 2020, if, the Demo- if in 16, the DNC had not put their, their hands on the, on the scale and had just let the primary voters choose, it would have been Hillary or it would have been Bernie, but we would have all felt good about the process. And I don't think Trump would have become president. And now with the cynicism of so many people, based on what we've seen happen twice now, uh, it's... Um, a serious conundrum. Yeah, it did feel like every every time, every day we would get an article like, can anybody stop when it, the race is sort of whittled down to Sanders and Biden? It was like we were getting articles like, can anybody stop Bernie? Like sort of this 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 fear mongering and, and well poisoning. And, and it definitely it definitely does seem like like that is is what happens. I mean, working in, in journalism you know, everybody has a political agenda. Everybody has has their views, and whether or not they're open about them, um, and you do you do sort of see that play out. I mean, the Washington Post is probably the most egregious example of 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 that. I mean, the 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 op ed section on the Washington Post is very hard is very hard to read. But um, I guess my my question for you then would be what what wisdom could you impart on future candidates? Um, and then are you planning on running again? I'm living where I think a lot of people are living. I'm asking the same questions that you're asking. Um, first of all, if we look at American history, third party voices have been very important. Abolition came from the abolitionist party. Social security came from the socialist party. Women's suffrage came from the women's party. Um, and we know that the, that the Democrats and the Republicans have formed this rather unholy alliance, making it very, very difficult for third-party voices. We also know the damage that Jill Stein did. Uh, some people would say it's not damage. I feel it was those 87,000 votes, because I don't care what you say. To me, there's no justification for trying to do anything uh, that would make a Trump presidency uh, more probable. Um, it's interesting right now watching the AOCs, the Pramila Jayapals, um, the progressives in the House particularly. It's interesting watching how they're playing the inside game. It's interesting watching people like yourself, Walker, and those of us who are trying to play the outside. There, I, did I say inside? I meant inside. I hope that's what I said. And then there are people like you and me and so many others doing the outside game. Um I, for myself, I feel at least right now, 
And I think what we're all looking for is how can whatever skill, whatever abilities I have best be of use. This is not a time for anybody to be thinking about their own personal anything. This is about American democracy here. Right now, I think, like you, articulating what I feel to be true is the greatest service. But I also agree with you. And forgive me, Mark, do you, do you write? Are you a writer also? Please forgive me if I don't oh, know. Oh, yeah, no, no. I've, I've, um, I've written a bunch of articles. Oh, please um, forgive me. With, uh, with, I'm with so Walker, sorry. And okay. uh, I, I help him with a lot of research and stuff. Okay, so forgive with me. Him, I'm, uh, yeah, forgive me for my ignorance. Yeah. Forgive oh, me no. for my ignorance. Okay, no for like the two of you. I, um, it's just Walker's work. I know that. No, no, I am I'm yeah. nowhere near as prominent a voice in, in these. <laughs> well, you will be now. I, I'm going to follow you now. Forgive me. Mark is yeah. Mark is one of the the smartest people I know, and definitely I think that the my best work is co-authored. It has has his name on the byline as well. Well, I know now. I didn't know before, but I know now. Um, right now, we're articulating uh, the the loyal opposition. We're articulating that that what the corporatist Democrats represent, of course, is is still the the uh, uh, chopping wood and carrying water for the oligarchy. It is not under uh, undercutting the oligarchy. It, it does not represent structural reform, and it still represents a perpetuation of trajectories that keep millions and millions and millions of people in deep suffering. Uh, like I said in the article, you had four hundred. Uh, you had forty percent of Americans even before the um, uh, the pandemic who could not absorb a four hundred dollar unexpected expenditure. So what we have right now, we don't even know. When we come out of COVID, we don't even know. It'll probably take 20 years for us to really be able to take a good look at some of what was actually uh, being um, uh, emergent, uh, becoming emergent with this COVID, particularly the extraordinary economic upset. So I'm like everyone else, uh, uh, trying to say the truth as I see it the best I can. Uh, if I ever run for anything again, um, if I get the gut punch, uh, I got a, my gut said yes. Uh, <laughs> if my gut ever says yes, um, I, I, I will run for something, but I know the brutality of it. I know the exhilaration of it when you're actually talking to voters, but I also know the brutality of it that is perpetrated by the, by the political media industrial complex and they're vicious. I understand it. Uh, so it, it, it just, uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I think, uh, I think all of us, all three of us have our ear to the ground. What can I do today? And, um, I'm also supporting on April 14th, I'll have a summit. I do these, I do what I can to promote great congressional, uh, and senatorial, uh, progressives. And so I'm, I, I do that quite a bit endorsing because as you know, as you guys are well aware, they do on the congressional level, this primary level, the same thing they do on the presidential they make it very difficult for real progressives uh, to emerge. And uh, they ask, you know, their idea when Chuck Schumer or someone asks someone to run, it's basically people that they think can self-fund. Someone who can self-fund is usually that's because they have money. They have money because they play that game. That's not the only game. And the game of democracy should be that which is best for the American people. So I'll do what I can, uh, whatever that means um but you're not ruling it like, out uh, uh no i don't i don't rule out anything in my life but that's that's sort of a general life principle that's not about politics that's just about the only way to live so there's any excitement factor at all 
<laughs> Fair so enough. I, I, I think one of the, the my favorite answers that you give, I, I don't know if this was at, um, this was during the presidential campaign. I don't remember if it was at a debate or in, in an interview, but um, it was something along the lines of the standard by which you would judge um, if your presidency was successful, if it was if America was the greatest place in the world for a child to grow up. That was the Jacinda Ardern. I thought that was amazing. And um, so I wanted to ask you, policy-wise, what, what would, would you think would be two or three things or even one thing we could do right now that would be most important to getting us well, to that place? On, on that, I feel very strongly that I had, when it comes to my, uh, my agenda, my platform in the last race, uh, the, I feel just it's why I ran and uh, to me remains primary. First of all, it has to do with the entrenched economic injustice, of course, of the oligarchy, of the corporate matrix uh, and corporatocracy. That's number one. Secondly, as you said, when they asked me who would be your first call, I said the prime minister of New Zealand. The prime mm. minister of New Zealand has said that she wanted New Zealand to be the best place in the world for a child to grow up. And if I was president of the United States, no, uh-uh. you're going to have competition on that one. Uh, and it's a very serious issue. We have, and I, and the horror of this is how much this problem has been exacerbated by COVID. We already had tens of millions of American children living with chronic trauma. We already had, and for instance, in the public school system of Chicago, Illinois, 40% of the girls in the public school system are deemed um, to have PTSD as severe as any returning veteran from Afghanistan or Iraq. And remember, a returning veteran has post-traumatic trauma, stress and trauma. These kids have present traumatic stress and trauma. Uh, many of these kids are, are growing up in uh, neighborhoods that are called America's domestic war zones. We have millions of American kids who go to schools that don't even have the adequate supplies to uh, and resources to teach these children to read. And if a child cannot learn to read by the age of eight, the chances of high school graduation is drastically decreased and the chances of incarceration is drastically increased. Plus, it is profoundly immoral. It is a form of passive oppression that you have, have the primary funding in our public school system uh, property taxes, which means that if you if a child lives in a, a financially advantaged neighborhood, they have a very good chance of um, a, a very fine public school education. If they don't live in a financially advantaged neighborhood, then not so much. The American economic system was uh, was invented basically before women had any voice in the public realm. Well, we have a voice now, and this is what we should be shouting about. We have American children who are in such dire circumstances, and yet, because children aren't old enough to vote, they're not a constituency, they're not old enough to work, so they have no financial leverage. And who has any advocacy in, in Washington who carries no uh, financial leverage, right? Uh, unless, uh, you know, citizen lobby, but I mean, it's just so much that Mary Knight Edelman herself can do. There has to be a massive movement. So that would be one. And this is even going to be worse after COVID. And then the second one is, is peace creation. The dominance of American foreign policy by the military industrial complex is so dangerous, not only for our democracy, but for the future of the human race. 
that it must be, and this in articulating this, making people understand that we must create peace. We can't just learn to wage war. Even Donald Rumsfeld said we must learn to wage peace. So a whole conversation about war and peace, which too often the left today does not take on, which is very different than when I was growing up, uh, to me is very important. So these are the kind of policy things I care about. It seems like they they both come down to money and its influence on politics. No, you're kidding. <laughs> Could it be? It's just, this thing looms <laughs> over every issue that we talk about. Yeah, it's the cancer underlying all the cancers. Yes. Undue influence. It is the cancer underlying all the cancers. Um, so let's. Can we talk a little bit about COVID and and the response? I I just did a a big article on this. Um, it seems that our response, the, the country's response to the, the pandemic um, has been one of like, has been one of suppression, sort of acceptable new cases and acceptable losses. Um, in New Zealand, uh, they locked down for five weeks. They provided relief to everybody and they got through it. And now the virus is, they've had, I think, 26 deaths. Um Whereas a state like Florida has had 32,000 no. uh, New York. Let's go to the beach more than that. Yeah. And, and, and so, so my, my question then is, is this, do you also see um, uh, the money, the money issue underlying our COVID response as well? Sort of this unwillingness to shut oh. down. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Jerry Kushner, uh, I think more than anyone else, apparently, apparently uh, from what you read at the beginning at the beginning, uh, Trump recognized what a big deal this was. Apparently, the voice in his ear, from what you read, that was the most uh, uh, significant here was Jared Kushner. God forbid we in any way challenge the market forces. We don't want to do anything with that. He could have called on the Defense Production Act immediately. He could have called, uh, used the Defense Production Act immediately to get enough equipment, to get enough PPE, to get enough contact tracing, uh, to get enough, um, uh, to get fast enough uh, development of vaccines, which didn't come till later. It was all like everything else we're talking about. First, how does the American, how does the capitalist system say they want to do it? And then after they've already declared the part that they think they could possibly make money off of, that's why we originally didn't go with the World Health Organization testing that was available. Because American companies, no, we want to make our own tests. So it was what the marketplace wanted before advocacy for the fact people are dying here. People are dying here. We got to act quick. We need the Defense Production Act. We need um, we need an almost mili militaristic uh, precision um, that we could have had. And it's a it's a, a tragedy. Obviously, I think hundreds of thousands of people are dead there, as in so many areas of our country, because we let the unfettered uh, crony capitalist voices weigh in first, and then the health, well-being, and safety of the American people. Oh yeah, we'll get to that afterwards. But in a way, it sort of seems like Biden is continuing that trend. I mean, we're still pushing. We're right now. We're pushing to reopen schools, and 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 we've got the CDC pushing. Uh, you know, oh well, maybe we'll maybe we'll we'll reduce the social distancing requirement to three feet. Now, that's I think that was what Fauci said most recently. And all the data that I looked at simply does not support it. I mean, there's there were a number of studies that suggested that children were not transmitting the virus, but those studies were based on symptom-based testing, and as we know, children are often asymptomatic. And I spoke to um, two epidemiologists for the piece and another after it had come out, and. You know the, the the sense that I get is that we need a, a zero COVID strategy, and I think that that might just cut against 
you know, everything that the market sort of wants. Um, well, the market wants kids back to school because until kids get back to school, parents can't get back to work outside the home. This is not about caring for our children. This is about uh, caring for a certain model uh, of, of economics that we've got to get the kids back so we can get the, the parents back to work. That's all that that's about. And I have, um, I have uh, been very vocal, of course, expressing that. And also, I think that um, something you just said reminds me of what I said earlier, we're not going to know probably for a couple of decades some of what all of this means, including if we let these uh, children go back too fast. Absolutely. Uh, I agree with you entirely, this push to get the kids back to school. Now, let me tell you what they come up with. Oh, Marianne, you don't understand. You don't even care about the mental health of these kids. These kids have to go back to school uh, for mental health reasons. Well, something's really wrong in America that being home with your parents that long is such a problem. Um, it shouldn't be such a, it should not be such a, uh, a threat to a child's mental well-being uh, to spend uh, that much time with their families either. So I agree with you. We're being very cavalier about this. Yeah, no, and, and um, I mean, I even heard more, even more than mental health, there's actual rates of child abuse going up and, and, uh, then even among the parents, alcoholism, drug abuse, deaths of despair, all skyrocketing. Um, and um, even before COVID, and it just, it seems, yeah, the, the body politic of this country is, is not doing well, very once, well. Yes, I was not in any way, and I'm, I'm glad that you said that because I'm not minimizing the problem, those problems, uh, they're horrible problems, but they were there before the pandemic. And the fact that we're saying, get, just get the answer, the only answer you have for it is get the kids out, out of the house. <laughs> no, no, I know. It's just, um, it, it's, it is a sad, um, when I, the, these statistics are grim. When I, was, uh, when I was running, I would talk to people all over the country who are mental health experts, educational experts, health experts, early childhood experts uh, who know about trauma-informed education, who know about emotional learning techniques, who know about community wraparound services. The, the, in this area, as in so many areas, all of the geniuses that we need, we have in this country. You know, even Bill Clinton used to say, and I think he was right, he said, everything that's wrong with America can be made right with what's right about America. But the real problem solvers in this country are thwarted time and time again, because real problem solving doesn't always make the short-term corporate profits. So when I would talk to people all over the country who were doing the work that would change these family systems, in addition to the obvious economic issues that we're all very aware of, so many times I would hear these heartbreaking stories of the ways that they had saved a child, that they have saved the family, the social workers, the educators, the, the, the people who really do know. And I would ask, this is so amazing, of the, of the children in your community who need this help, how many have you been able to reach? And all over the country, I would routinely get the same answer. And that was about 10%. Oh, wow. Wow, that is... That is That's what... That's why we need a department of children and youth. We have, we have you know, health and family services. You know, we have fa uh, uh, family services under you know, uh, HHS. We have that. But it, it is completely inadequate to the task of rising to the occasion of the humongous 
problem we have with so many chronically traumatized children. We have a Department of Agriculture, which is important, by the way, but we should also have a Department of Children and Youth. And and we need to the, change the, the culture around it that almost looks down on people in these positions, teachers, social workers, and does not remunerate them um, anywhere near, um, you know, in proportion to the to the good that they're doing. And meanwhile, if, you know, you, you build an algorithm that can serve, that can make, you know, 10,000 more trades per second, it's, that's worth a billion dollars. But uh, if you, if you, if you save a thousand children, that's. We should completely and massively front end our resources to the first 10 years of life. Um, we know things now that they didn't even know 10 years ago about the neuroplasticity and so many aspects of the brain, 80% of the brain development in the first few years, et cetera. I went to these places in South Carolina, interestingly enough, called the governor schools. Um, uh, the, there are two of them. There's a governor school of uh, math and science, and there's the governor school of, of um, arts and humanities. They are palaces. They are public schools. They're extraordinary. Every American public school should be a palace of culture and learning and the arts. Every public school. If you want a, a prof profoundly abundant economy, 10 years from now, take better care of your 10-year-olds today. And fund and fund Absolutely. the arts. Well, that's part of taking care of them. Don't <laughs> <And I laughs> take some money. That's why we need a wealth tax, among other things. Yeah, we're not against money. We just want more people to be able to be in the club and able to, uh, you know, the problem is not that some people can create wealth in America. The problem is that not enough people ever get a chance to. If you're in the club in America, there's really no better place. Not enough people can get in the club. They're locked out. And too many of them are locked out before they're 10 years old. Let me ask you something. As, as somebody who developed a, a presidential platform and then, and then ran on that around the country, did you find that there was um, adequate sort of left-wing infrastructure? I know this is a departure from what we were just talking about, but sort of the intellectual infrastructure for left-wing policy wonks um, out there. Because something I've noticed is that there, there, there's uh, data for progress, which you know has their sort of um, their policy, you know, crafters and. Um, and 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 it just it seems like the Center for American Progress, uh, which is a neoliberal think tank, is sort of. I wasn't getting my information from them. Yeah, no, no, no. But they sort of dominate this space, and I was just wondering because you do you did have a, a very progressive platform, you know how you found actually crafting that if there if you had any if you ran into difficulty and 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 whatnot. Well, I'm a writer. And I had written a book called Healing the Soul of America, interestingly enough. Um, and I wrote a book called The Politics of Love. So I, I was already, like I, I was mentioning to you guys before we went on, I didn't know you, but I already, I was always reading, uh, already reading everything everybody was writing. I just didn't know everybody personally, like, like everybody knows each other, but I wasn't mm -hmm. part of that. And then, of course, that, that's interesting, too, how that played out, because how the media influences that. But I felt, I mean, to anybody who wants to know what's going on, I mean, brilliant left-wing thinkers exist in this country. It's not like there's a dearth of them. So if you want to know what's going on, yeah, I, I don't feel that I, there's a lack of information. You just have to get over thinking Rachel Maddow's giving it to you. No, no. I, I mean, <laughs> I mean in, infrastructure for actually crafting like legislate, like legislative proposals and whatnot, because 
you know, the, it's, it's sort of embarrassing that the center for American progress is still looked at as like, Oh yeah, they're the, the preeminent like left wing think tank in America. They're not really left wing, definitely a think tank, but not left wing. I, I would like to see uh, definitely more left wing think tanks, but for the most part, I don't think that's where the problem lies. The, we, you have, I mean, I even see with the people that I've endorsed for these congressional races in 22, they're real smart progressives out there. These, particularly these young people, they know what they're talking about. I don't feel that they lack uh, information. Uh, if you look at uh, work such as yours, if you, I mean, it's out there. So no, I, I, that has never been my impression. My impression is how it's, is that it's so suppressed and the extraordinary power of establishment forces uh, to, 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 thwart these voices, to suppress these voices, I don't feel they're not there. I feel they are there and people are not stupid. And I even felt, once again, as a candidate, the American people are not stupid, but we are not presenting to the American people the option of a policy. Why don't we do the right thing? How about that, guys? Why don't we do the right thing? Why don't we choose that which would be most noble, that which would be most aligned with the true creed, as when Martin Luther King said, America living up to its creed. I think the American people are ready for it and have been ready for it. This country elected Lincoln, okay? This country elected Lincoln. The problem is not that the information is there. The problem is not that the voices are not there. And the problem is not that the voters are not there. The problem is that we have a political establishment which mitigates against the real impulse of American democracy. That is a problem because they're in the hands of the corporatocracy and the oligarchy and take circles us back to money and politics. Started with Reagan um, and president after president, Supreme Court decision after a Supreme Court decision has locked it up. But I think for myself, am I talking too much now? Am I? No, 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 okay. not at all. Um, this is fantastic. One of the, one of the things that I feel as a person who's older than the two of you is I think the older we get, we're the keepers of the story. Something very beautiful there about, you know, I, I like the fact that people are talking these days about intergenerational dialogue, because I think the older you are, the more you know certain things. The younger you are, the more you know certain other things. And what you know as an older person is you have more of an institutional memory that applies to the entire culture. I don't just know it. You can read about it in books, but I'm telling you, I was there in the 1970s. I can tell you how it felt. In the 1970s, the average worker had a decent job with decent benefits, could own a home, could own a car, could take a vacation and could send their kids to school, uh, to college. They could afford to send their kids to college. And if one parent wanted to stay home all day, the salary that was made by one parent was enough to support all of what I just said. So for someone of my age, we look and we go, what the fuck, what is going on? Whereas someone your age, you never really viscerally knew it as a different. And that is what deeply concerns me. Well, and, and that, I think is what what you just described in the '70s is what most people thought was the dream of capitalism. Um, we, I, I think I think our generation understands di- what capitalism is differently now. It's what we grew up in, 
Um, and, and, and this is why I think there's a divide about when younger people talk about socialism and art and hate capitalism and older people are like, how can you hate capitalism? It was even like people who were fairly liberal back then are very wary of, of any sort of anti-capitalist bent. I think it's a different understanding of the terms. I look at younger people today and I totally understand they're saying, what the hell has global capitalism ever done for me? I totally understand they're saying, what should I be so afraid of in socialism? The free health care or the free college? <laughs> I totally get it. <laughs> but the, the capitalism of the 1970s was a regulated capitalism. You know, it was, it was, it was a Bill Clinton who, with the Telecommunications Act of 19, uh, uh, in the 1990s, that corporatized the media. It was Ronald Reagan that got rid of the Fairness Doctrine. It was, it was uh, Bill Clinton who got rid of the... Um, and got rid of Glass-Steagall. It was the, the orgiastic deregulation and privatization that was brought about by Reagan in ninth, starting in 1980 with trickle-down economics. So it was a different capitalism. It was a different brand of capitalism. It was four capitalism. Years, four years after the, the 1976 Buckley decision. But I'm sure there's no connection. <laughs> well, absolutely. And I'm not, you know, at this point, you know, I used to argue um Clearly, it is capitalism has had, there has been such a legitimization of greed. There has been such a disconnection between capitalists and any kind of, of, of ethical core. The only thing is, Walker and Mark, I, human greed, it's not just inherent in an economic system. It's human greed. It's, it's not like you can't be a greedy socialist. I don't think it's as simple as people are making it. That's my only criticism there. Some people are acting like we just got rid of capitalism. We just had socialism. It would all be different. There's different kinds of socialism. There's, you know, Cuba's different than Venezuela. It's different than Vietnam. It's different from China. Uh, we, we, don't want, uh, we don't want China. We don't want the complete suppression of any dissent and, and press. So I think the conversation needs to be far more nuanced and sophisticated than many people are having today. Um, I have been horrified uh, during COVID that there have not been more people like Dan Price, like Mark Cuban, like others who have stood up. Uh, when you look at the billions of dollars that have been made on what is essentially crisis profiteering by the Jeff Bezos, of Elon Musk's and others, um, and yet still going back to Biden, he still won't talk about a wealth tax. Yeah, I, def I definitely, um, <clears throat> I think that, I think that there's an anti-capitalist sort of meme and sloganism that is f way oversimplified and I appreciate the uh, call for nuance there. And I think it is, um, at the end of the day, it's, yeah, it's, it, it is about creating a system. Maybe capitalism works extremely well in certain areas and different systems work well in other areas. Well, you look at Europe, and, and, you know, some who, yeah. yeah. Some elements capitalist, some elements socialist. We have, listen, we have some elements socialism right now. What do you think the police department is? What do you think the fire department is? And that's what's, that is what's become so deranging for, about the conversation. Is, well, healthcare could be just the same. Yeah, ex exactly. It's, it, it is all about creating a, a mix of ideas that result in the best outcome for the people living under the system. You have more billionaires per capita in Sweden than in any other country. Did not realize that fact, but yeah, I did not know that. yeah, yeah. So you can have socialist elements and capitalist elements, and 
more you so many people are just left out of the club. I think I look at so many young people. This this is how I feel about these college loans. All these young people, you know, who are now yelling anti-capitalism, 10 years ago were feeling they just wanted to be young capitalists, but nobody will let them in. And, you know, so many young people I've known who would love nothing more than to have $2,500 of discretionary funds that they could spend starting their, their website and getting in there, getting into the, into the river, getting in, you know, start swimming and being, and they've been cut out. How can they, how can they celebrate a system that is constantly closing the door upon them? I get it. I get it. It's definitely refreshing to hear. Um, I, we, we've almost gone an hour. I really want to thank you so much for taking the time. Um, Marianne Williamson is a former presidential candidate, a best-selling author, a political activist, and a spiritual leader, and somebody that I am personally a very big fan of. And I know that Mark is as well. Thank um, you. It has been an absolute Absolutely. pleasure speaking with you, and I hope that you'll join us again. Thank you. I would love to. And I want to say one thing, if I may. Uh, I don't know if you read a book called Gardens of Democracy. But in that book, they used an image that I want to throw out that I thought was so good. They were talking about money in America. And they were talking about the way money is currently distributed in the United States would be like if all the blood in the body went to one arm. That the that blood is, has to circulate. And I thought that was such a powerful such a, image. Such a great metaphor. Mm-hmm. That is, and speaking of things to read, uh, everybody should read uh, your new op-ed, United States of Oligarchy, which is in Newsweek, and we'll include the the link um, to to um, that. And uh, yeah, check out Marion's books as well. Thank you. Uh, Politics of Love, that's the most recent one, right? Yeah, yeah. And the Candidate Summit on April 14th. People can find information about it on Marianne.com. I want to introduce you to some really good progressive candidates who will be running in 22. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Audio editing by Alex Koch. Original theme music by Direwolf.